You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. From Matthew 17, 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they, were lift, uh, sorry, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but, on, uh, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that the first Elijah, that say first Elijah must come? And then he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. But the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of our Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, let's bow our heads and pray and ask for the Lord and especially his Spirit's guidance as we reflect on this passage this morning. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we, your church, assembled together now knowing that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Father, we pray right now that you'd make us hungry for this heavenly food and that your spirit would turn this word into digestible and edible elements so that as we hear your word preached, we find ourselves nourished and built up so that we could learn and grow in our trust and love of Christ and faithfully serve you all the days of our life. Would you do this, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to begin this morning with something of a a thought experiment. Let's imagine that someone anonymously gave Christchurch Toronto a piece of land, a really wonderful piece of land off the Danforth, and they also left a a good-sized amount of money, let's say $6 million, and they they said their only instructions were, uh, this land must be used for for worship for Christchurch Toronto, and this money must be used in its entirety for building a building for Christchurch Toronto. And as I said, it was off the Danforth, and we did what we would probably do, which is we pulled together a group of people to help us secure architecture firms and make plans as to what the building's going to look like. And as the project is going, things are progressing nicely. It's, it's a beautiful building that we intend to build. The congregation is excited. And then about a year in, after various starts and fits, we'll blame it on city permits or something, let's suppose the architectural firm has enough and they step down. And let's suppose, in this thought experiment, I, uh, as this renegade pastor, call a congregational meeting by myself, and with the surprise of the elders and with the surprise of everyone here in the staff, I present a new architect. He's 30 years old. He's a nice mix of confident and arrogant, depending on how you view him. Uh, 
And he presents an unbelievable building that he would like our church to build. And he not only unveils this splendid sort of PowerPoint and this presentation about this building, but he even brings a 3D model and puts it before us. And what he builds, what he proposes we build is something that your mind can barely comprehend. Something that is so beautiful and ornate, it's almost unrecognizable compared to the original plans. His proposal is, if your God is who you say he is, and if he's as important as you say he is, then let's make this the biggest building in the city. The most ornate, the most beautiful, the most captivating, the most overtop, so that no one could walk past it. Let's make this building something glorious. I could see thousands of people. He proposes this wonderful building with 18 spires that shoot so high into the sky, it seems like they virtually dis- disappear. And he says that this building is going to be not just this sort of praise of modern technology and the heights that we get, but there's going to be numerous hand-sculpted elements that are going to be stunning. There'll be no right angles, almost no straight lines, all curved walls, and this beautiful domed curved ceiling. All of it imagery that are glimpses of the greatness of God and the glories of his creation. And at the meeting, after hearing this presentation, those of us who maybe aren't as financially smart as others find ourselves super excited for what might be in store for our church. And then someone asks the question, you know, how much more money will we need to raise over the gift that was anonymously given? And with a straight face, the architect looks us all in the eyes and says something like a thousand to ten thousand times what was given. And then he extends the invitation, will you participate in this? Someone else raises their hand and say, this is unbelievable, but how long do you foresee this taking? And the architect says, yeah, it's a big project. It's going to take a while. But if all goes well, I can probably pull it off in 150 years, give or take. And the congregation begins to laugh as people chuckle and say, "You're, you're telling me the largest sacrifice of my life is going to go to something my grandchildren won't even see? And he says, don't worry. You know, don't worry. This is going to be worth it. And he reminds you of this building, and he gives you a glimpse of the glory and what this could mean for the city. Now, let me just remind you, this isn't a thought experiment. I'm not going to introduce you to an architect to come on the stage. It's not a bait and switch. Um, But this isn't a fictitious story. This happened in 1883, right, in Barcelona. I imagine some of you picked up on what I was referring to. Antonio Gaudi, a 30-year-old architect, took over a project to build what has become the Sagrada Familia, you know, a project that's still under construction and may, may end in the next two years. But how in the world did this 30-year-old architect convince people to give incredibly sacrificially, almost unbelievably sacrificially, for something that they would never see the end result of, that their, their children would never see the end result of? And how did he keep this project? How did, the, how did the people who were behind this project keep it moving forward? Well, what they did is they painted a picture of something glorious, something overwhelming and breathtaking and almost otherworldly that was so stunning and so much greater than any sacrifice they were asking them to make. The the glimpse of glory was greater than the sacrifice. And so that's why the funding began to roll in for this particular project. Now, maybe not a perfect illustration, but what I'm trying to, to argue this morning is this. If you can understand something of how a vision for the Sagrada Familia helped people and motivated people to extraordinary sacrificial giving, then you can understand what Jesus is doing here in this particular passage, what is happening in this passage. 
He's giving them a glimpse, his, his closest disciples, a glimpse of a greater glory than the Sagrada Familia. Something, something gr- much greater, much more grandiose than they could ever understand. And this glimpse is going to change their life. It's going to give them a picture of something that any sacrifice to ask would be worth it. To be able to get to and to participate in this glory. If you see this glory, you'll do whatever it takes to get there. And then he's going to give them the path with which they'll have to walk if they want to participate in this glory with him. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at first this glimpse of glory, and then the path towards glory, okay? The glimpse of glory that the disciples get, and the path towards glory. So let's start with this glimpse of glory. It's what this passage is all about. And in many ways, uh, Jesus is giving Peter, James, and John not necessarily the blueprint of some grand cathedral, but something, the blueprint of where all of humanity is heading. You know, he's giving them a, a 3D model of where it's all about to end up before he calls for uh, the necessary sacrifices that will take place. He takes them to a high mountain, and if you're in the Bible, anytime you see mountains come about, very often there's going to be some kind of encounter with the heavenly realm. They go into the mountain, and in the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. The Greek word is, meta, meta, well, where we get the word metamorphosis. He's, he's transformed. And his, he, the glory of God, which is described as brighter than the sun, sort of begins to radiate and permeate through him while he remains in flesh. It, the glory of God shines through him so much so that even his clothes, which touch his glorious flesh, start to radiate with a color, this radiant white, this splendor. We don't have categories for what, what is being described here in Matthew and in all the other Gospels, but it's clearly a vision that captivated them. Maybe think of that nuclear glow or something even greater. Uh, th- this is otherworldly glory. The one... Uh, The second person of the Trinity, light from light, true God of true God. The one uh, who had the power to bring all of creation into being. The one who is said to give source to the Son. The glory of that one begins to permeate the very flesh of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. The one who had the energy to hang all the galaxies in their place. That glory is now seen in human flesh. And it causes these clothes to radiate with a white that is beyond description. And here in the mountain, as, as Jesus is, is metamor- he goes through this metamorphosis in a sense. He's still very much Jesus, still very much in flesh. But the glory of another realm begins to, to radiate and pulsate through him. The two other great leaders of God's people who also went up on mountains, Moses, who went on a mountain and received God's law and entered the nation into a covenant with God, a special bond between the people of Israel and God. He's there with Jesus. And Elijah who represents all of the prophets as the nation sort of rebelled against God, the one who was the voice crying and calling people to come back. They are there with Jesus. And now Jesus, in a sense, in this transformed state, uh, hears the words that he, the disciples heard over his baptism. This is my son. And now they hear that they must listen to him. Now what is happening in this story? Let your imaginations go there. What is going on is Jesus is giving the disciples And the disciples felt the need to write this down in all the Gospels so that you and I could get a glimpse of glory. And there's no greater glimpse of glory in all of Scriptures. Now what's going on here? We're getting a glimpse of the blueprints, the the grand path with which God is directing all of human history. Let me try to explain. God existed in eternity in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they exhibited uh, a greatness and a love and a glory throughout all eternity, in this harmonious relationship, three in one. And this glory, in some senses, can't be contained. This greatness, this splendor, this majesty, it can't be contained. 
And this Godhead exhibited their glory, manifested the glory by creating the world. All the world that we see is made so that we can see and know that our God is glorious. And the glory of, of, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sort of overflows and spills over and is seen in these works of creation. And the crown jewel of God's creation is humanity. And we were given a chance to taste and see and in a mysterious way participate in the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're called to bear witness to this glory until it covers the entire earth, the glory of God, which is seen in God's heavenly realm. We're to reflect it and sort of radiate that until all of the earth is covered with this glory. But you may remember our first parents were tempted with a path towards glory that seemed like a shortcut. It seemed early on. They ate and rebelled against God. They ate of the forbidden fruit in a different mountain, the mountain at the, where the Garden of Eden was planted. And there they heard this haunting message, a message that rings through your ears whether you call yourself a Christian or not. They heard this message as they were expelled from the garden. You are dust, and to dust you will return. You have no more glory, and you will search all your life for it until you're ground down to the dust. The greatness you long for is going to be overshadowed by the ephemeral and the temporary nature of life. You are dust, and to dust you will return. And all of human history, including the chapter we're in here in Toronto right now, all of human history is a a story of humans longing to establish and create this glory, to to participate in something greater than themselves, to push back the ephemeral nature of life and to taste of and be a part of real glory. And all falls short. Over and over and over again, we see various attempts by humanity to grab after and seize glory, and they're under their own uh, strength and under their own power. And these things continue to fall short. And over and over again, you and I know how many of you are seeking glory in your work. How many of you are seeking glory in quote-unquote mountaintop experiences where you, you feel tied up with the greatness of this world or you climb the corporate ladder high enough so that you have some, some feeling of weightiness and of importance and of glory that you're not, you're not part of the burden of this world of being ground down to dust. You're something greater. You will last forever because of your research, because of the finances you're able to amass. The story of humanity is a story of glory lost, in our attempts to find glory in all the wrong ways, through spouses, through relationships, through pleasure, through experience. We're seeking to matter. We're seeking to push back this feeling that we are dust, and to dust we will return. And yet, every last one of us knows, the higher you get up that ladder, the more you find there's a larger ladder right there ahead of you. All of us knows, even the Sagrada Familia, as beautiful as this building is, there's going to come a time where someone's going to be there and think, boy, it could be better. You know, it could be bigger. All these things are fleeting and passing attempts of glory. And what we have here is Jesus revealing on this mountain the greatness of the glory of where humanity is destined to be when they're in proper communion and connection with their God and with their creator. They're getting a glimpse of this glory. And Jesus is here with skins and muscles and ligaments and bone structures. Here he is, still very much human, representing for us what our humanity is destined to be if they're in proper connection with the God, and yet he's oozing and infusing and dripping with this glory of God, this glory that all of humanity longs for. C.S. Lewis once gave a lecture in 1942 called The Weight of Glory. I know some of you have probably heard of it, but in this reflection he says this. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see. 
to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves and to bathe into it and uh, bathe in it and become part of it. This is what we're longing for, and this is where so many earthly experiences leave us coming short. And what we see here is Jesus showing us what it looks like for humanity to truly experience the glory that we long for. Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of the glory. You know, Peter says, this is incredible. If, the, if, the, if this is where it was all headed anyway, let me set up three tents. Let's start a new city here on top of this mountain, a new temple of sorts, so that people can flock here and the glory of God can be uh, participated in and experienced, and it can again from this mountain spill out into the ends of the earth. But just as surely, as, as quickly as Peter is exploring and understanding what's going on, and he hears this voice, and they fall down in terror and in fear, the glory disappears. It's, it's like it's just there and gone. And not only that, but they're told, there's something limited about their brain power at this time. They're told, listen, don't even talk about this until after the resurrection. Don't even, don't even bring it up. Don't even teach about it. This is a life-transforming, uh, incredible experience, and yet you don't fully understand it. And then Jesus unveils to them the path towards glory. How are they going to then get, if, if this was a glimpse of glory, what is the path to glory? What is it going to look like for them to get there? What is the path towards glory flooding our earth again? And what does he say in verses 9 through 13? After he tells them to keep quiet, there's some words that might sound confusing to you, but there's a reference back to John the Baptist. There was, you know, at the time, great talk that John the Baptist would first come again, and on his coming again, then the Messiah would come. And Jesus unveils to them, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that John, John the Baptist was actually the Elijah that was to come. Sorry, I may have gotten those names wrong. Elijah was to come eventually because he had been taken into the heavens and he would come again before the Messiah comes. And Jesus unveils that John is indeed the Elijah that was to come. But what's the path towards glory? Obviously, John the Baptist is beheaded and meets a terrible ending. What's the path towards glory that Jesus is saying his disciples will experience? Well, you see it in verse 12, that the Son of Man still needs to suffer many, many things. And what Jesus wants his disciples and us by extension, you and me, to see is that the path with which we have to walk, if we're ever going to taste this greatness and this glory we long for, is a path of rejection and of suffering. My hunch is the whiplash would have been almost dizzying, so incredibly perplexing, but it shouldn't have been surprising to the disciples who were students of the Bible for so long. Think about it. Abraham called to be the father of all nations. And what is his life struggled known as? Or what, is it, what does he struggle most of his life with? He and his wife struggle with infertility. And even after he finally does have a son, what does the Lord call him to do? He calls him to be willing to sacrifice his son on a mountain. His life ends with a divided family because of sins and mistakes that he and Sarah made. Think of Moses. He's called to lead God's people out of the promised land. But what does that path towards this glorious promised land look like for Moses? But it looks like suffering and wandering in the desert. And he's even unable to see the land himself. Think of all the prophets who were called to bring God's word to bear on God's people. What is their life marked by? Virtually every one of the prophets, their life is marked by rejection and persecution. Over and over and over again, what do we see? God's call for those who want to labor towards glory and participate in glory, something greater than the earthly experience you have now, the path with which you must walk if you want to get there is a path that is laden with suffering that is laden with, with uh, frustration and futility and pain. 
Each person here that is hearing Jesus, that gets to see this transfiguration, all three of these disciples are going to die a martyr's death not too long after this episode. And they're going to spend their life spreading the good news of the fact that this glory can be found as they walk on a path of rejection, as they walk on a path of suffering. What is Jesus telling these disciples and what is he telling you and me? He's telling us this, that following Jesus is always going to include two elements. You got, you've got to have a glimpse of this glory. You've got to, you, you know, I sound like a, I, was a, I was a Christian in the 90s. I know some of you were, you know, Switchfoot. We were meant to live for so much more. You know, that feeling, there's like one person in this church that laughed at a Switchfoot joke. It was a good song, worth listening to again. Um, you know, that, that we sincerely were meant to live for so much more. That death is this, this foreign interruption, this, this disturbing ending. You know, many of us were at this funeral yesterday. It's just not the way it should be. Someone who did so much good for this world, that we heard the story of the impact over and over of one person's, you know, actions, that, that it comes to an end. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet this is someone who, you know, she, she labored to glory in the way in which she served others and served you. She had a glimpse that there was no sacrifice too great for the glory that was coming her way. She had a glimpse of this glory. And discipleship will always mean you have to see where things are headed for those who are in Christ. And, you know, and it has to be clear as day. Because it's only then when you see it you'll understand and you'll be willing to walk the path of sacrifice. The path of suffering. This, this picture of glory has got to so captivate you and so overwhelm you that there becomes no ask of God, no pain so great that you can't walk through it. Because you know something greater than you can even imagine, something more glorious than you could even wish for or hope for or put to words is coming. You, you will ooze with and drip with this kind of glory when, when the Lord comes and to renew all things. This is what discipleship will always look like, a captivating vision of what it looks like for the human race to taste of God's glory and an acknowledgement that there's going to be a path of suffering to get there. Now, what should this mean for us today? Well, it should mean for us at least one thing, that when we experience suffering and setback and futility, it doesn't necessarily mean we're doing things wrong. And in fact, it might be the truest sign that we're on the right path. As we are united to Christ in his suffering, all of a sudden we realize that this is the path towards glory, laboring in pain and suffering for the good of others, laboring hard to see the glory of God brought in full communion with the human race. It's going to look like a path of suffering and futility and pain. Now let me just, I'm a little low on sleep and cried more than I've cried in a while, but maybe if I could just give some reason as to why I think this passage is really important and pertinent for us in our time. Uh, I, I've been pretty captivated by this sociologist Ryan Burge's work on, uh, called The Great Dechurching. I've referenced it somewhat. The unfortunate side is it, it reflects only on U.S. data points. But something has happened in the U.S. that I think Canada is even more extreme in, and that in the U.S., in the past couple of years, over 40 million uh, Christians have left church. It's called the great de-churching. That whatever sort of increase in church attendance came during sort of great moments in church history, there's been an incredible decrease that is almost breathtaking and overwhelming. And now there is a tremendous percentage of people, more than attend church, uh, don't attend church, and there's a tremendous number of people who identify as having no religious affiliation, okay? The sociologist says this is the greatest sociological shift in decades. That's incredible what is going on. 
And all this is happening at the exact same time that our cultures are colliding with, uh, with all kinds of difficult situations. Large-scale immigration, for a variety of reasons, is causing difficulties in North American culture. New technologies, especially the internet, are making it such that church failures are very public now and before our eyes all the time. The internet has also been a great tool to spread all kinds of good news, but also to spread all kinds of questions and doubts throughout our world. And what I think is happening in society is we slowly, um, we are, as the Christian community, losing kind of cultural capital. You know, it's, we wonder how long we'll be able to meet in a school like this, you know? We went from being um, the majority of a culture, speaking uh, as a force of good for the world, to one option among many, you know, whatever, if you go to church, that's fine, I'm not into that, to now a place where, where Christianity, especially the Christianity that's trying to stay loyal to God's word in the Bible, is being seen as somewhat destructive and maybe regressive and backwards for society. And all of this has taken place in a time when political, you know, political polarization has sort of reached fever pitch, it seems. It seems like it can't possibly be pushed any further, the differences between the various poles. And why I think this glimpse of glory and the path of suffering is important for our church to think today is as people have felt this lack of power, it seems to me there's two, two responses that have become very common. As the general society, especially Christians who once maintained some level of power and cultural capital in the world, have felt that they have no more voice, and they felt sort of silenced, they've resorted to worldly measures, political measures, sort of political alliances. Uh, they've, they've, they've tactically, uh, you know, underhandedly sort of gone after power, the way that the world go plays power. And what's come about is there's been, in a, in a tragic way, Christianity is now finding itself coupled with sort of political cruelty at times, sort of a lack of compassion, uh, sort of, if this is how the game is played in our world, well, we're going to hitch our wagons to those who are nastiest, and if that's, if that's the way you win, then we're going to win this way. And there's a real temptation. There's a real temptation and loss of power to play political games this way. That's, that's one response. And I don't necessarily, in some senses, I'm preaching to the choir when I call that out as a problem. I think most people in our church would say, amen, you know. But there's another response which might, might sit a little too close to home in our community, which is that people start to get, I don't know, cynical. There's, there's sort of a hopeless resignation. That, that there's no hope that we can make influence. There's no hope that the glory that Christ offers to us that we get a glimpse of, we can pass on to the wider society and can make an impact in the wider world. And so, even amongst us, even in my own heart, what's the goal of putting a lot of time into building institutions that might last multiple generations? You know, what's, what's, what's the point in trying to have influence in society? It seems like it's only going to result in frustration. It's only going to result in suffering. Why would, I, why would I spend my life that way? And the response is the cynicism that does nothing. You know, maybe gripes with people around coffee, but makes no action of striving towards neighbor because we're scared to walk the path of suffering. Both of these people are scared to walk the path of suffering. And what is this passage telling us? There is no other way to taste this glory that we all long for. There's no other way to have this agency and power we all crave. This world where all is made right. There's no other way to get there than to walk through the path of suffering. So, so what's the point of, of, of alliances, the cruel alliances that spread word that Christians hate their neighbor? And what's the point of hopelessness? All of those things are just attempts for us to avoid the path of suffering. And I believe the Lord wants us to see in this passage, if we are going to know this glory, if we're going to taste of this glory, we are going to spend our lives suffering and laboring to tell people there is a world to come where all is made right, where there's no tears in anyone's eyes, where you are the best version of yourself in a way that a life coach could never pitch to you 
where you, where you have this endless glory, where, you, where you, you will close your eyes one day and you will wake up. You know, our sister Jean did not confess her sins this morning as she joined with those who are in paradise with our Lord. You know why? Because she's passed on to a glimpse of glory. We labor and labor and labor and suffer and fight sin and do our best to love neighbor and, and risk being misunderstood and don't give up on people. Why? Because this is the path to glory. Because we're marching and following in the shadow of a Savior who was misunderstood at every juncture. At his own trial, he was put in a situation where he couldn't even really answer the questions because it was such a mockery. So he stayed silent and was the victim of grave injustice. And he gave of his life. And his death becomes the mean, means by which this problem, this glory-hunting problem, is fixed. We see in his death, this is how glory starts to infuse and pour into our world. And in his resurrection, we see this is a body that will never experience death again. And he tells us, this can be yours. And indeed, by faith, you can grab onto this now by being loyal to me, by trusting me. And he's saying the path towards this is going to be the path of suffering. Friends, this is what I've been trying to say. Maybe I'll conclude this way. I could get, continue to get wound up, but I hope I've made my point well. We've got a hard task ahead of us. Don't, don't any of us dare think it's not going to include suffering. Don't look for the path of least resistance. That's, you're going you're to find yourself bankrupt. You're going to regret it. It's always going to be laden with suffering. What I'm trying to say is this. Gaudi died in 1926. He was only able to work on his project for 43 years, and at his death there was maybe 20% of the Sagrada Familia done. 1936, during the Spanish Civil War, uh, people came in and vandalized not only the construction projects, but actually found every copy of the blueprints, and they burned the blueprints of the Sagrada Familia. And during COVID, construction was paused. And yet today, not too long ago, the construction picked back up again because people had a glimpse of a glory. That is a mild glory compared to the glory that, that the disciples see here in Jesus. And if I can encourage you anything, what I, want you to, what I want you to take away from this passage is that you will and can taste the glory that Jesus bodily sees in this passage. This isn't something that's unique to him. As a human being in union with Christ, at your death and in the resurrection, you can taste and experience a glorious life like this bodily. It's available to you in Christ. The path there looks like suffering. It starts by turning from your sins, regretting decisions you've made, acknowledging a lack of loyalty, and painfully turning to Christ, but knowing full and well that all forgiveness is found in him. It hurts, but there's more joy than I can ever describe to you, and so also will be the same for the path of suffering that lies ahead. It's going to hurt. It's going to be tough. But there's more joy to come than I can describe. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the transfiguration a uh, story in your life that has been the subject of numerous pieces of artwork. And as I read this story, I can't help but wish and long I could have been there, which I could have got a glimpse of this glory. And yet, you've left it for us in your words so that we would be captivated by it. Would you set our minds aflame with a vision of this glory that is ours in Christ, that our bodies and our lives will experience some of this glory, something of this glory in days to come, not far away. And it will be... It, it will be unlike anything our imagination could long for. And would that vision strengthen us for any suffering that you might have in our path? For we walk it, following after our Savior Christ, who is our hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.